0: Chapter the Thirty fourth, Book the First of Little Dorrit. Read for LibriVox.org by Ellis Christophe. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book the First. Chapter the Thirty fourth. A Shoal of Barnacles. Mr. Henry Gowan and the dog were established frequenters of the cottage, and the day was fixed for the wedding. There was to be a convocation of barnacles on the occasion in order that that very high and very large family might shed as much luster on the marriage as so dim an event was capable of receiving. To have got the whole Barnacle family together would have been impossible for two reasons. Firstly, because no building could have held all the members and connections of that illustrious house. Secondly, because wherever there was a square yard of ground in British occupation under the sun or moon, with a public post upon it, sticking to that post was a barnacle. No intrepid navigator could plant a flag-staff upon any spot of earth, and take possession of it in the British name, but to that spot of earth, so soon as the discovery was known, the circumlocution office sent out a barnacle and a dispatch-box. Thus the barnacles were all over the world, in every direction, dispatch-boxing the compass. But, While the so potent art of Prospero himself would have failed in summoning the barnacles from every speck of ocean and dry land, on which there was nothing, except mischief, to be done and anything to be pocketed, it was perfectly feasible to assemble a good many barnacles. This Mrs. Gowan applied herself to do, calling on Mr. Meagles frequently with new additions to the list, and holding conferences with that gentleman when he was not engaged, as he generally was at this period, in examining and paying the debts of his future son-in-law, in in the apartment of Scales and Scoops. One marriage guest there was, in reference to whose presence Mr. Meagles felt a nearer interest and concern than in the attendance of the most elevated barnacle expected, though he was far from insensible of the honour of having such company. This guest was Clennam, but Clennam had made a promise he held sacred among the trees that summer night, and in the chivalry of his heart regarded it as binding him to many implied obligations. In forgetfulness of himself, and delicate service to her on all occasions, he was never to fail. To begin it, he answered Mr. Meagles cheerfully, I shall come, of course. His partner, Daniel Doyce, was something of a stumbling block in Mr. Meagles's way, the worthy gentleman being not at all clear in his own anxious mind but that the mingling of daniel with official barnacleism might produce some explosive combination even at a marriage breakfast the national offender however lightened him of his uneasiness by coming down to twickenham to represent that he begged with the freedom of an old friend and as a favour to one that he might not be invited for said he as my business with this set of gentlemen was to do a public duty and a public service and as their business with me was to prevent it by wearing my soul out, I think we had better not eat and drink together with the show of being of one mind. Mr. Meagles was much amused by his friend's oddity, and patronized him with a more protecting air of allowance than usual, when he rejoined. Well, well done. You shall have your own crotchety way. To Mr. Henry Gowan, as the time approached, Clennam tried to convey by all quiet and unpretending means that he was frankly and disinterestedly desirous of tendering him any friendship he would accept. Mr. Gowan treated him in return with his usual ease, and with his usual show of confidence, which was no confidence at all. "'You see, Clennam, he happened to remark in the course of conversation one day, when they were walking near the cottage within a week of the marriage, "'I am a disappointed man, that you know already.' "'Upon my word,' said Clennam, a little embarrassed, "'I scarcely know how.' Why, returned Gowan, I belong to a clan, or a clique, or a family, or a connection, or whatever you like to call it, that might have provided for me in any one of fifty ways, and that took it into its head not to do it at all. So here I am, a poor devil of an artist. Clennam was beginning, but on the other hand, when Gowan took him up, yes, yes, I know, I have the good fortune of being beloved by a beautiful and charming girl whom I love with all my heart is there much of it clennam thought and as he thought it felt ashamed of himself and of finding a father-in-law who is a capital fellow and a liberal good old boy still i had other prospects washed and combed into my childish head when it was washed and combed for me and i took them to a public school when i washed and combed it for myself and i am here without them and thus i am a disappointed man clennam thought and as he thought it again felt ashamed of himself Was this notion of being disappointed in life an assertion of station which the bridegroom brought into the family as his property, having already carried it detrimentally into his pursuit? And was it a hopeful or a promising thing anywhere? "'Not bitterly disappointed, I think,' he said aloud. "'Hang it, no, not bitterly,' laughed Gowan. "'My people are not worth that, though they are charming fellows, and I have the greatest affection for them.' Besides, it's pleasant to show them that I can do without them, and that they may all go to the devil. And, besides, again, most men are disappointed in life, somehow or other, and influenced by their disappointment. But it's a dear good world, and I love it. It lies fair before you now, said Arthur. Fair as this summer river, cried the other, with enthusiasm. And by Jove I glow with admiration of it, and with ardour to run a race in it, It's the best of old worlds, and my calling. The best of old callings, isn't it? Full of interest and ambition, I conceive, said Clennam. And imposition, added Gowan, laughing. We won't leave out the imposition. I hope I may not break down in that. But there, my being a disappointed man may show itself. I may not be able to face it out gravely enough. Between you and me, I think there is some danger of my being just enough soured not to be able to do that. To do what? asked Clennam. To keep it up, to help myself in my turn, as the man before me helps himself in his, and pass the bottle of smoke. To keep up the pretense as to labour and study and patience and being devoted to my art and giving up many solitary days to it, and abandoning many pleasures for it, and living in it, and all the rest of it, in short, to pass the bottle of smoke according to rule. But it is well for a man to respect his own vocation, whatever it is, and to think himself bound to uphold it, and to claim for it the respect it deserves, is it not?' Arthur reasoned. "'And your vocation, Gowan, may really demand this suit and service. I confess I should have thought that all art did.' "'What a good fellow you are, Clennam! exclaimed the other, stopping to look at him, as if with irrepressible admiration. "'What a capital fellow! You have never been disappointed. That's easy to see.' It would have been so cruel if he had meant it, that Clennam firmly resolved to believe he did not mean it. Gowan, without pausing, laid his hand upon his shoulder, and laughingly and lightly went on. Clennam, I don't like to dispel your generous visions, and I would give any money, if I had any, to live in such a rose-coloured mist. But what I do in my trade, I do to sell. What all we fellows do, we do to sell." If we didn't want to sell it for the most we can get for it, we shouldn't do it. Being work, it has to be done, but it's easily enough done. All the rest is hocus-pocus. Now here's one of the advantages or disadvantages of knowing a disappointed man. You hear the truth. Whatever he had heard, and whether it deserved that name or another, it sank into Clennam's mind. It so took root there that he began to fear Henry Gowan would always be a trouble to him, and that so far he had gained little or nothing from the dismissal of nobody, with all his inconsistencies, anxieties, and contradictions. He found a contest still always going on in his breast between his promise to keep Gowan in none but good aspects before the mind of Mr. Meagles, and his enforced observation of Gowan in aspects that he had no good in them. Nor could he quite support his own conscientious nature against misgivings that he distorted and discoloured himself by reminding himself that he never sought those discoveries, and that he would have avoided them with willingness and great relief, for he never could forget what he had been, and he knew that he had once disliked Gawain for no better reason than that he had come in his way. Harassed by these thoughts, he now began to wish the marriage over, Gawain and his young wife gone and himself left to fulfil his promise, and discharge the generous function he had accepted. This last week was, in truth, an uneasy interval for the whole house. Before Pet, or before Gowan, Mr. Meagles was radiant, but Clennam had more than once found him alone, with his view of the scales and scoop much blurred, and had often seen him look after the lovers. In the garden or elsewhere, when he was not seen by them, with the old clouded face on which Gowan had fallen like a shadow. In the arrangement of the house for the great occasion, many little reminders of the old travels of the father and mother and daughter had to be disturbed and passed from hand to hand, and sometimes, in the midst of these mute witnesses, to the life they had had together, even Pet herself would yield to lamenting and weeping. Mrs. Meagles, the blithest and busiest of mothers, went about singing and cheering everybody, but she, honest soul, had her flights into storerooms where she would cry until her eyes were red, and would then come out, attributing that appearance to pickled onions and pepper, and singing clearer than ever. Mrs. Ticket, finding no balsam for a wounded mind in Buchan's domestic medicine, suffered greatly from low spirits and from moving recollections of Minnie's infancy. When the latter was powerful with her, she usually sent up secret messages importing that she was not in parlour condition as to her attire, and that she solicited a sight of her child in the kitchen. There she would bless her child's face, and bless her child's heart, and hug her child in a medley of tears and congratulations, chopping boards, rolling pins, and pie crust, with the tenderness of an old attached servant, which is a very pretty tenderness indeed but all days come that are to be. And the marriage-day was to be, and it came. And with it came all the barnacles who were bidden to the feast. There was Mr. Tite Barnacle, from the circumlocution office, and Mew Street, Grosvenor Square, with the expensive Mrs. Tite Barnacle, knee still-stalking, who made the quarter-day so long in coming, and the three expensive Miss Tite Barnacles, double-loaded with accomplishments and ready to go off, and yet not going off with the sharpness of flash and bang that might have been expected, but rather hanging fire. There was Barnacle, Jr., also from the circumlocution office, leaving the tonnage of the country, which he was somehow supposed to take under his protection, to look after itself, and, sooth to say, not at all impairing the efficiency of its protection by leaving it alone. There was the engaging young Barnacle, deriving from the sprightly side of the family, also from the circumlocution office, gaily and agreeably helping the occasion along, and treating it, in his sparkling way, as one of the official forms and fees of the church department of how not to do it. There were three other young barnacles from three other offices, insipid to all the senses, and terribly in want of seasoning, doing the marriage as they would have done the Nile, Old Rome, the New Singer, or Jerusalem. But there was greater game than this. There was Lord Decimus Tite Barnacle himself, in the odour of circumlocution, with the very smell of dispatch-boxes upon him. Yes, there was Lord Decimus Tite Barnacle, who had risen to official heights on the wings of one indignant idea, and that was, my lords, that I am yet to be told that it behoves a minister of this free country to set bounds to the philanthropy, to cramp the charity, to fetter the public spirit, to contract the enterprise, to dump the independent self-reliance of its people. That was, in other words, that this great statesman was always yet to be told that it behoved the pilot of the ship to do anything but prosper in the private loaf and fish trade ashore, the crew being able, by dint of hard pumping, to keep the ship above water without him. On this sublime discovery in the great art how not to do it, lord decimus had long sustained the highest glory of the barnacle family and let any ill-advised member of either house but try how to do it by bringing in a bill to do it that bill was as good as dead and buried when lord decimus tight barnacle rose up in his place and solemnly said soaring into indignant majesty as the circumlocution cheering soared around him that he was yet to be told my lords that it behoved him as the minister of this free country to set bounds to the philanthropy, to cramp the charity, to fetter the public spirit, to contract the enterprise, to damp the independent self-reliance of its people. The discovery of this behoving machine was the discovery of the political perpetual motion. It never wore out, though it was always going round and round in all the State Departments. And there, with his noble friend and relative Lord Decimus, was William Barnacle, who had made the ever-famous coalition with Tudor still stalking, and who always kept ready his own particular recipe for how not to do it. Sometimes, tapping the speaker and drawing it fresh out of him with, uh, First I will beg you, sir, to inform the House what precedent we have for the cause into which the Honourable Gentleman would precipitate us. Sometimes asking the Honourable Gentleman to favour him with his own version of the precedent. Sometimes telling the Honourable Gentleman that he, William Barnacle, would search for a precedent, and oftentimes crushing the Honourable Gentleman flat on the spot by telling him there was no precedent. But precedent and precipitate were, under all circumstances, the well-matched pair of battle-horses of this able circumlocutionist. No matter that the unhappy Honourable Gentleman had been trying in vain for twenty-five years to precipitate William Barnacle into this... "'William Barnacle still put it to the house, and, at second hand or so, to the country, "'whether he was to be precipitated into this. "'No matter that it was utterly irreconcilable with the nature of things and cause of events, "'that the wretched Honourable Gentleman could possibly produce a precedent for this, "'William Barnacle would nevertheless thank the Honourable Gentleman for that ironical cheer, "'and would close with him upon that issue.' and would tell him to his teeth that there was no precedent for this. It might perhaps have been objected that the William Barnacle wisdom was not high wisdom, or the earth it bamboozled would never have been made, or, if made in a rash mistake, would have remained blank mud, but precedent and precipitate together frightened all objection out of most people. And there, too, was another barnacle, a lively one, who had leaped through twenty places in quick succession and was always in two or three at once, and who was the much-respected inventor of an art which he practised with great success and admiration in all barnacle governments. This was, when he was asked a parliamentary question on any one topic, to return an answer on any other. It had done immense service, and brought him into high esteem with the circumlocution office. And there, too, was a sprinkling of less distinguished parliamentary barnacles, who had not as yet got anything snug, and were going through their probation to prove their worthiness. These barnacles perched upon staircases and hidden passages, waiting their orders to make houses, or not to make houses. And they did all their hearing, and owing, and cheering, and barking, under directions from the heads of the family and they put dummy motions on the paper in the way of other men's motions, and they stole disagreeable subjects off until late in the night and late in the session, and then with virtuous patriotism cried out that it was too late. And they went down into the country, whenever they were sent, and swore that Lord Decimus had revived trade from a swoon, and commerce from a fit, and had doubled the harvest of corn, quadrupled the harvest of hay, and prevented no end of gold from flying out of the bank. Also these barnacles were dealt by the heads of the family, like so many cards below the court cards, to public meetings and dinners, where they bore testimony to all sorts of services on the part of their noble and honourable relatives, and buttered the barnacles on all sorts of toasts. And they stood, under similar orders, at all sorts of elections, and they turned out of their own seats, on the shortest notice, and the most unreasonable terms, to let in other men. And they fetched and carried, and toadied and jobbed, and corrupted, and at heaps of dirt, and were indefatigable in the public service. And there was not a list in all the circumlocution office of places that might fall vacant anywhere within half a century, from a lord of the treasury to a Chinese consul, and up again to a governor-general of India, but as applicants for such places, the names of some or of every one of these hungry and adhesive barnacles were down. It was necessarily but a sprinkling of any class of barnacles that attended the marriage, for there were not two score in all, and what is that subtracted from a legion? But the sprinkling was a swarm in the Twickenham cottage, and filled it. A barnacle assisted by a barnacle married the happy pair, and it behoved Lord Decimus Tite Barnacle himself to conduct Mrs. Meagles to breakfast. The entertainment was not as agreeable and natural as it might have been. Mr. Meagles, hove down by his good company while he highly appreciated it, was not himself. Mrs. Gowan was herself, and that did not improve him. The fiction that it was not Mr. Meagles who had stood in the way, but that it was the family greatness, and that the family greatness had made a concession, and there was now a soothing unanimity pervaded the affair, though it was never openly expressed. Then the barnacles felt that they for their parts would have done with the meagleses when the present patronizing occasion was over, and the meagleses felt the same for their parts. Then Gowan, asserting his rights as a disappointed man who had his grudge against the family, and who perhaps had allowed his mother to have them there, as much in the hope it might give them some annoyance as with any other benevolent object, aired his pencil and his poverty ostentatiously before them, and told them he hoped in time to settle a crust of bread and cheese on his wife, and that he begged such of them as, more fortunate than himself, came in for any good thing, and could buy a picture to please to remember the poor painter. Then Lord Decimus, who was a wonder on his own parliamentary pedestal, turned out to be the windiest creature here, proposing happiness to the bride and bridegroom in a series of platitudes that would have made the hair of any sincere disciple and believer stand on end, and trotting, with the complacency of an idiotic elephant, among howling labyrinths of sentences which he seemed to take for high roads, and never so much as wanted to get out of then Mr. Tite Barnacle could not but feel that there was a person in company who would have disturbed his lifelong sitting to Sir Thomas Lawrence in full official character, if such disturbance had been possible. While Barnacle, Jr. did, with indignation, communicate to two vapid gentlemen, his relatives, that there was a feller here, look here, who had come to our department without an appointment and said he wanted to know, you know, and that look here, if he was to break out now, as he might, you know, for you never could tell what an ungentlemanly radical of that sort would be up to next, and was to say, look here, that he wanted to know this moment, you know, that would be jolly, wouldn't it?' The pleasantest part of the occasion by far to Clennam was the painfulest. When Mr. and Mrs. Meagles at last hung about petting the room with the two pictures, where the company were not, Before going with her to the threshold, which she could never recross to be the old pet, and the old delight, nothing could be more natural and simple than the three were. Gowan himself was touched, and answered Mr. Meagles's, "Oh, Gowan, take care of her, take care of her, with an earnest, Don't be so broken-hearted, sir, by heaven I will. And so, with the last sobs and last loving words, and a last look to Clennam of confidence in his promise, Pet fell back in the carriage, and her husband waved his hand, and they were away for Dover, though not until the faithful Mrs. Ticket, in her silk gown and jet-black curls, had rushed out from some hiding place, and thrown both her shoes after the carriage, an apparition which occasioned great surprise to the distinguished company at the windows. The said company, being now relieved from further attendance, and the chief barnacles being rather hurried, for they had it in hand just then to send a mail or two, which was in danger of going straight to its destination, beating about the seas like the flying Dutchman, and to arrange with complexity for the stoppage of a good deal of important business otherwise in peril of being done, went there several ways, with all affability conveying to Mr. and Mrs. Meagles that general assurance that what they had been doing there they had been doing at a sacrifice for Mr. and Mrs. Meagles's good, which they always conveyed to Mr. John Bull in their official condescension to that most unfortunate creature. A miserable blank remained in the house, and in the hearts of the father and mother and Clennam. Mr. Meagles called only one remembrance to his aid, that really did him good. "'It's very gratifying, Arthur,' he said, "'after all, to look back upon.' "'The past?' said Clennam. "'Yes, but I mean the company. "'It had made him much more low and unhappy at the time, "'but now it really did him good. "'It's very gratifying,' he said, "'often repeating the remark in the course of the evening. "'Such high company!' End of chapter the thirty-fourth, book the first. This recording is in the public domain.